Hello, everybody. Let's, uh... uh. <laughs> yes, let's do that. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode four of Let's Talk About Sweat. How, so are you, are you going to introduce I, I'll, the, just, I'll just do the whole thing. I'll just do the whole thing. introduce Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I didn't know if we want to both say hi. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode four of Let's Talk About Sweat. This week, uh, we're talking about the history of antiperspirants. It's just David and me this week, but it is a fascinating history, and I think y'all can... Uh, Learned something. Uh, that sounded patronizing. <laughs> <laughs> I am your teacher. This week, David and I are talking about the history of antiperspirants. We learned a lot doing this, so I hope you enjoy listening to it. But before that, David, you want to tell us this week's embarrassing sweat story? Yeah, so this week's embarrassing sweat story is another one of mine, actually. It's something that every hand sweater knows and has done before. It doesn't sound that embarrassing, but if you've been there, if you've done it, you know exactly what I'm talking about and you can relate. So um, I was interviewing for different scholarships, senior year of high school. This one in particular was at Georgia Tech. I'm from Atlanta. I'm from Decatur. It's about 20 minutes north of the city, but uh, Georgia Tech in Atlanta and uh, was interviewing. It was like this, you know, final interview weekend. We go for in-person, there's in-person interviews. There are like 60 of us. And we go into, well, I, each one of us has an individual interview with like six people in a room. And it was an hour long interview. At the end, after I shake everyone's hands, I'm like, oh, my hand is so wet and dripping. I I try to tell them, oh, sorry, I I, I just washed my hands. That's why it's wet. And then I, my face gets beat red because I've been in the room for an hour and have not used the restroom in over three. So uh, that was pretty obvious to people. And they gave me some really weird looks because obviously I had not left the room to go to the bathroom and they knew that. Um, And that was just one of many times I've had to try to make up an excuse for why my hands are so sweaty and have failed to do so. Well, I think a lot of us have had experiences like that. If you want to share yours, send it to my story at mycarpe.com. We'd love to feature you on the show. But without further ado, let's talk about sweat. Let's talk about sweat. Hey, everybody. I'm Casper. And I'm David. And we were two sweaty guys who started Carpe. We met in college. We connected over our sweaty hands. And we've spent the past few years thinking about sweat, researching sweat, and working on sweat solutions. So join us each week, and let's talk about sweat. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Last week, we were talking with Andrew Best, uh, who was teaching us a lot about how sweating evolved. Uh, This week, we're talking about something a bit different, kind of cutting much closer to the present day, uh, we want to talk about how our solutions to sweat have sort of evolved recently, basically how antiperspirants came into existence. Yeah, and, and we're excited to dive in. So this is slightly a different style. I don't know most of the answers here, and so I'm just going to be asking questions, and Casper's been doing a lot of the research into the actual history. So um, for me, I mean, the, the first question that I have about the history of antiperspirants is when was the first one ever made? Yeah, just for some context, it was around 1900, right? So it's actually only been about 100 years that we've had antiperspirants. But, you know, backing it up before that, uh, people, people still got sweaty, people still were smelly, and it's not like it wasn't a problem. Like, people had solutions for this, but you have to remember that, you know, as, as far back or as, as recently as 200 years ago, um, in, like, castles, people were pooping behind curtains and wearing like, you know, napkins, perfume napkins to not smell it. I think, I don't know. That's not part of the research that I did in depth, but that's something I remember from touring castles in Europe way back when. Do you remember that? 
No. No, that's not a thing, you know? No, this is a thing. Like, I, I, I look it up. Like, a few hundred years ago, people in castles, they had, like, these basically rooms where they would just go in and poop and it, it would just accumulate there. So, I think we had, like... A so, back to sweat. Well, we had a... The, the point is we had a lower standard of personal hygiene coming right. into this, right? And then, late in the 19th century, so, like, in the 1880s, uh, was the first recorded instance of a deodorant coming onto the market. Hmm. And the reason odor... Actually onto the market. Actually onto the market. Yeah, I'm sure like, you know, some alchemists in the 1600s had probably tried something, but, you know, never never to leave the confines of their lab. Um, But the reason that we started with odor, I think, is because people were apparently already using these like sweat shields under their clothes. So, you know, you can still get these today, but basically cotton pads that you put under your arms, you know, that they kind of stick on so you don't see the sweating on your clothes. This is something that a lot of people were actively using day to day in Victorian times, basically like late 1800s. Okay, so uh, they were using these cotton sweat shields into the late 1800s. And then we had, before antiperspirants, we had the onset of the deodorant. And how did the deodorant come about? So the deodorant, so that's just like kind of a one-off. It was called okay. Mum, I think. It was like 1880. Uh, I didn't actually write it down in my notes, but um, basically, you know, just an attempt to start doing something about the odor, but it wasn't super popular, right? Um, what was it, do we know? Ah, it was just some kind of, um, it was some slight antimicrobial, eh, slight antimicrobial agent. Okay. Basically, one of the ways deodorants can work is by trying to attack the bacteria that grow that actually cause the odor. Um, I don't remember if we talked about this in the first episode, right? But, you know, the the reason armpits get smelly is because the apocrine glands release, uh, you know, pretty dense sweat that's laden with a lot of organic materials that's really good for... Uh, bacteria to grow in and then the eccrine sweat glands really add a ton of moisture so that kind of soup is great for bacteria they make it smelly so you know stop the bacteria theoretically you can stop the uh, smell Uh, but the deodorant didn't work that well the cotton sweat shields were still pretty nasty and so in 1903 this is funny because uh, there's actually not a very good record of this but there's all sorts of little references showing that in 1903, there was some uh, some uncommon antiperspirant called Everdry okay. that made it onto the market. And people, it was just like a, a liquid and you were supposed to dab it on with a cotton pad. And Do we know what it actually was? Uh, aluminum chloride, almost oh, certainly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then, so, so there's like this brief mention of Everdry in 1903, but it doesn't seem to go anywhere. And then in 1909... Uh, this is when it really got started. So this guy, this surgeon in Cincinnati, Abraham D. Murphy, Dr. Abraham D. Murphy of Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, basically had sweaty hands when he was, you know, in surgery and he wanted to do something about this. And I couldn't get a clear answer on why, what made him think to use aluminum chloride, but apparently, uh, it, it was maybe a cleaning agent used at the time. And he noticed that it was like stopping his sweaty hands. So he started putting aluminum chloride on his hands and that really reduced the, the hand sweating during surgery. Wow. So he, he discovered that aluminum chloride helped reduce sweating just be, as like a side effect of using it for something else. I think so. You know, there's there's no clear record of that, but that's what it seems like because it really wasn't being used widely as an antiperspirant. I mean, I, I would say 99% of people didn't have the concept of an antiperspirant uh, in their minds at the time, right? Okay, so he discovers that uh, aluminum chloride, what, what concentrate was it? So, was so this a, is funny. So yeah. they, uh, you know, I, I think the company wasn't really publishing this, but they did some studies on it, some independent labs did some studies on it in like the 1910s. And uh, basically turned out it was 33% aluminum chloride. Wow. 
Yeah, and so for context, uh, dry cell today, which is like the really irritating prescription aluminum chloride, is what, 20, 25%? Yeah. Yeah, so this stuff is insanely irritating because aluminum chloride forms uh, hydrochloric acid, and I think we talked about this a bit in our first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's super irritating. Uh, but he's using it as on his hands. He's using it on his hands where the skin isn't that thick. Uh, sorry, he's using it on his hands where the skin's thick enough that I think the irritation's manageable. Uh, but his daughter, Edna Grace Murphy, put it on her armpits and she said, oh wow, this stops the sweat, this stops the odor. For whatever reason, she tolerated the, uh, you know, the irritation, but she said this could be big. So she tried to start selling it under the brand name Odorono, uh, which is like, odor, oh no. <laughs> I don't know. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So when did she try to start selling it? 1910. So she tried to start selling it in 1910, and did it did it go anywhere? No, not at all. So 1910, Cincinnati, Ohio. This is the really the roots, I think, of modern antiperspirants. She starts selling it, uh, uh, you know, on consignment in some local pharmacies, and the inventory just isn't moving. And she's got a couple people doing door to door sales, which is keeping it afloat. Uh, but for the first two years, you know, she really didn't get any traction. She was 23 when she started this, by the way. 1910, she was 23, yeah. And was she trying to sell it as a hand antiperspirant like her father used it for or as an underarm? So primarily underarm um, because I was looking at ads from like the early 1910s when this company was really getting started. They were running newspaper ads and the vast majority of them were saying that basically these underarm sweat shields are deprecated. You do not, you no longer need underarm sweat shields uh, because you now have something that will actually stop the sweat. But... I also found an ad for golfers in 1917 uh, from Odorono where they were set, you know, it was this testimonial from a golfer who was saying like his game is so much better because his hands don't sweat when he puts it Odorono on them. That's amazing. So what ended up happening with the company? So, you know, really tough start. But in 1912, uh, she kept it at this exhibition in Atlantic City all summer. And that's when it really started taking off. It was like a hot summer in Atlantic City. More and more people started trying it. And it was red and stained clothes. And it was aluminum chloride at 33%. So it was super irritating. But it was the first real solution to excessive sweating in the armpits. So it really, really started slowly taking off from there. It, it really took off over the next two decades. And some other competitors started entering the market. But that was really the start of this brand. Uh, and then in 1928, it took them that long to release a less irritating version. Um, oh, wow. So that was the kind of the beginning. What was the less irritating version? I'm not sure. I think it was just less aluminum chloride. Um, But in 1933, she sold the company for $3.5 million, which in today money is like, I don't know, like 60-ish. So yeah. So she started this from nothing at 23, this thing her dad had made to to stop sweaty hands in the OR and grew it into the the first prominent antiperspirant brand. Wow, who'd she sell it to? So she sold it to this company named Northam Warren. Uh, They started growing it into all sorts of SKUs, all sorts of different antiperspirant products, and uh, they sold it in 1960. And by 1987, it was owned by Unilever. So, you know, just a series of acquisitions. And Unilever uh, rolled it up into the trademark Rexona, which is- Oh, wow, that's degree. That's degree. So that's the most popular antiperspirant in the world today. Um, and you know, it was kind of a merger of a few different brands they had, but basically Odorono has slowly evolved into what, uh, oh most God, of us know as degree insane. today. Yeah. That's really insane. So, so when did, so it took almost a century for the antiperspirant market to really take hold? Well, about half a century actually. So you said Unilever bought it in like 1980. Yeah. But at that point it was, you know, there were so many brands out there. That's just like a curiosity that, oh, this first antiperspirant brand has kind of become degree. Okay. Okay. Great. So. 
She sells Odorono in 1930-ish. Yes. And what does she do after that? Do we know? Oh, she's done. She's out of she's the story. Done. All right. She worked on other like cosmetics brands. Perfect. When when did like antiperspirants first? What, why are they called antiperspirants? Who who called them antiperspirants and deodorants? I don't know. I you know I spent a few days doing research on this. Uh, we maybe will we'll talk to a historian about this in a future episode. But uh, that is not one of the facts. Okay. That so I we don't know, know the etymology. No, of the word. we don't know okay. the etymology of the word. <laughs> um, when did antiperspirants really become mainstream? In terms of like they're sold in every store. There are a ton of competing brands. And there are also a set of regulations around them. Like, what, what is the entire landscape and how did the landscape around them evolve? And how did, because now we have, you know, 15, 20 different aluminum salts yeah. outside of just aluminum chloride. How did we get to that point? That's a great question. So I, it seems like kind of through the, through the 20s is when Odorono really started growing into a household name. Um, but it started with women. So the advertising really, really targeted women who uh, were using these sweat shields under their dresses. And you look back at these ads and it's basically like, you know, stop ruining your dresses. Uh, it's like, or a careless mistake of forgetting your sweat shield, you know, costs you this this dress forever. And Odorona could have prevented that. Um, and guys were very resistant to using this for a while. Why? Well, because it was considered like manly to smell bad. Oh my God. Apparently. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. The marketing companies were were, do, were publishing research about this in the early 20th century, and it was like, oh, I don't know what we're gonna do. Guys like smelling bad. Um, this one guy said he uh, he he sometimes rubs his um, rubs his body down in grain alcohol after showering to to prevent the smell. So that's like a manly way, you know. Apparently, to smell <laughs> like that. Uh, which funny enough, he was kind of onto something there because complete sidebar uh, in the clinical trials for Cubrexa. If you look at you know their vehicle, which yeah. is largely an, an alcohol vehicle, it actually did right. do pretty well yeah. in reducing sweat in and of itself. So like maybe there's something there. Uh, but anyway, guys eventually came around to it. I know that uh, right after World when? War II, like around World War II, okay. there was this company right after World War II that was actually selling antiperspirants, or it might have been a deodorant, uh, in like whiskey jugs because the founder was like, "There's nothing more manly than whiskey." So that's how we're going to get guys. So the antiperspirant was just still liquid at that point. Yeah, it was largely liquids for a pretty long time. Um, Odorono did some really interesting innovation in like the 30s and 40s and started doing powder antiperspirants. They, they did get into deodorants as well a little bit. Um, but really, it seems like in the 50s was when it, it went from or something that most people knew about, but a few people were using to something that every single person was using. Because by the 70s, it seems like 98% of people in the United States were using this wow. daily. But I think one of the things that helped that happen is in basically the 40s. Yeah, here we go. In the 40s, uh, people really started looking into ways to make antiperspirants less irritating and more usable. So like the first patent that I can find is in 1940. That's basically a method to try to make aluminum chloride less irritating. And then in 1947, two chemists, uh, this guy named Gorit and this guy named De Nevers, uh, were experimenting with basic aluminum chloride. So they were trying to replace most of the chloride with hydroxide ions. If you know what chlorohydrate is, that's like chloride with hydroxide-ish, basically. So uh, so this is when the chlorohydrates developed. I don't know, listeners, uh, how familiar you are with the aluminum salts, but basically these days, 99% of antiperspirants out there use aluminum chlorohydrate or some variant thereof. So 1947, that's when these aluminum chlorohydrate salts enter the market. And they're not quite as effective, but they still stop sweat and they're not irritating. And that's the big thing, because aluminum chloride forms this hydrochloric acid, aluminum chlorohydrate, 
does not. And from there, the innovation really exploded over the next couple decades. And actually, most of the modern antiperspirant salts we have today were invented between the 40s and the 60s. And who was inventing them? I think it was labs, uh, research labs for these manufacturers for companies like Unilever. Um, but then spray deodorants, spray... Uh, Aerosols. Sorry. Yeah, aerosols. Aerosol antiperspirant, sorry. Uh, wow, I'm making antiperspirant theater mistake. Um, spray aerosol antiperspirants became by far the most popular thing. This is what like everybody in the United States was using in the early 70s. And that is the first time that the uh, FDA actually started talking about regulating antiperspirants. Because prior to that, they were an unregulated category, basically a cosmetic. And this is when the FDA started over-the-counter drug monograph review, like the, the monograph creation process. And early on in this process, I don't know if it spurred this or if this kind of happened while it was um, while it was getting started. But Gillette was running some trials on spray antiperspirants in their labs, like pre-market trials, and they found that it was causing some lung stuff in mice, I think. Uh, and so suddenly, all these people who are and it was specifically the aluminum zirconiums, I think. Hmm. Um, all these people who are using these spray antiperspirants, which, you know, you can inhale basically, uh, started getting worried about, you know, what could happen here. And the FDA actually said we should stop uh, selling antiperspirants, like spray antiperspirants until we figure out whether this causes lung damage. So long story short, they did a lot of studies and it turns out it doesn't. It doesn't seem to cause okay. lung damage. So right now they're allowed. Like spray antiperspirants. So did they stop for a time? They actually did stop. Oh, wow. Yeah, they actually stopped for a period in the 70s. Um, and then dragged it out through this whole monograph process. And then what came out the other end, which is this over-the-counter antiperspirant monograph, uh, really seemed to be the kind of um, the kind of stilling uh, of the entire market. Because since then, there really hasn't been any innovation in form factor or in novel molecules. And that's kind of where you know we decided this is where and what antiperspirants are. And now we're just going to make different sense of them and uh that's that's kind of it so from the from the 1900s 1909 when it really got started through 1970 and that's when innovation kind of slowed down but at that point everybody was using them that's kind of when the market matured so if so many people are dissatisfied with their current antiperspirant deodorant product which most people are just because they don't work that well yeah um the mass kind of brands on the market for heavy sweaters why is the innovation slowed down well, that's a good question. I think so. I think, did, so, so basically, I think what it is is uh, it's good enough for most people, or for a lot of people, it's good enough that the big companies figured there's not much sense in making this better. Um, I mean, we started Carpet because we disagree because we think there are ways to make it better, and we think we have made you know the state of antiperspirants better. But um, you know, really, I, I also do think that perhaps in terms of this novel molecule innovation. Uh, some people have tried, but maybe the aluminum sesquichlorohydrates, the aluminum zirconiums are just about as effective as you can get without causing severe irritation in terms of the novel active molecule. Some of the stuff that we're doing at Carpe is increasing irritation through other ingredients in the formula, right? Increasing efficacy. What did I say? Irritation? Yes, we are not increasing irritation. We are increasing efficacy. We want it to burn. No, <laughs> we don't use. Uh, I mean, we don't want aluminum chlor chloride to burn. And actually, there are ways to mitigate the irritation of aluminum chloride. So that was what some of the research started in the 1940s. Um, and you know, you look at the literature from like the 90s and the early 2000s, and it's actually a lot of dermatologists that are experimenting with ways to make aluminum chloride um, less irritating. So, so it's weird. I mean, it's it's not like people stopped trying to make antiperspirants better. It's just that the big companies stopped, probably because there didn't seem to be much of a commercial incentive to to do that. Hmm. And you said that 
innovation really slowed down after this. When did the zirconiums pop up? I think the zirconiums popped up in around the 50s, 60s. Really? Okay. Yeah. So we haven't had any real new molecules introduced across the aluminum salt spectrum after the 70s. Yeah, nothing that you know works on this antiperspirant mechanism of actually you know getting a physical block in the sweat gland which is kind of the least invasive way you can reduce sweat because all the stuff that has i guess been innovated since has been more on the neural level so botox which you know kind of shuts down the neural activity of the sweat gland same thing with anticholinergic drugs um i mean the biggest innovation probably in sweating in the last five years has been topical anticholinergics which you know a bit more of an intense mechanism of action than these antiperspirants Right. So really not a lot of innovation in antiperspirants since the 70s, which is ironic because the 70s is the first time we really actually started figuring out that how they might work. Like they knew that they do work prior to that. Right, because the, the surgeon had no idea why it worked. Exactly. And, and so what do we know now? Well, I think, you know, in the 50s, 60s, you start seeing papers that are exploring how it works, where it's at that point, it's still a theory whether this just gets into the sweat gland and causes like a plug in the sweat gland or whether it's actually getting under the skin and somehow, you know, I guess neurologically, you know, pharmacologically reducing the activity of the sweat glands. And some studies started showing that, no, it's, it's probably a, uh, it's probably a block in the sweat gland. And 1975 was the first paper that I could find anybody citing um, that somebody proposed that maybe it's not just the antiperspirant itself getting in the sweat gland and suddenly forming a plug. Maybe it's interacting with something there. Maybe it's interacting with like proteins or these keratin fibers that are already in the sweat gland. And uh, that theory was still not considered, you know, by any means certain for decades after that. It, it's on, honestly only in the last 10 years that I've seen papers that start using electron microscopes and, and much more intensive uh, techniques to confirm that hey, that's actually probably what's happening. Is like these aluminum salts are interacting with proteins that are already in the sweat gland. Uh, and that's what's causing these, these blocks, these like little plugs that reduce the sweating. Wow. Um, what took people so long to figure out how they actually work if so many people were using them? I think, um, I think it's because it's so much simpler and so much less medical of a mechanism than most kind of over-the-counter drugs. Because... Most things you're using, Tylenol, you know, Advil, what are other over-the-counter drugs, and antihistamines, allergy yeah. medications, like these are all pharmacological agents that interact in kind of complicated ways with really long uh, chains of stuff that's happening inside your body. They're interfering with like pain transmission. They're interfering with, you know, immune response um, by, by targeting specific things. And antiperspirants, meanwhile, are literally just making a very, very small like plug and they just plug themselves into that sweat gland and plug mm. the sweat gland. It's just so simple. There are no like systemic effects. Exactly. I think people were looking for something on that kind of biomolecular level and it's so much more simple and so much more mechanical than that. And I think that was almost surprising. Hmm. That makes sense. So based on where we've been, where we are today, where do you think the antiperspirant category is going? I mean, over time we've moved back. Like it's so based on the history, it really started in deodorants, yeah, and then antiperspirants for a very long time. But now there's a shift back to you know a very heavy deodorant aisle. True. This is actually another thing that I discovered in, in looking into this. Uh, I think as recently as the '90s, uh, the vast majority of people were using antiperspirants actually. And recently, uh, I think a lot of marketing by a lot of startups over the last 10 years uh, that just make deodorants, because 
I, I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons it's kind of easier to go into the deodorant category, but it's a cosmetic, it's less regulated. I think has been moving a lot of people into deodorants. And what a lot of people are finding is that, you know, they actually need the sweat stopped. So I think there's kind of gonna be a pendulum swing back into antiperspirants. And maybe with this renewed interest, there's gonna be more innovation in actual molecules, in the actual novel molecules that stop the sweat. Because I think coming into Carpe, we were thinking, okay, you know, this is the state of the art. These are the molecules that actually stop sweating, the antiperspirant salts that actually work. Um, and realizing that it, these were only discovered really as antiperspirants about 100 years ago, and the innovation only really stopped 50 years ago and it stopped largely for what looked like commercial reasons and not actually reasons of like, we just maxed out the science. Uh, I think there's a chance that over the next couple decades, we might see even more effective antiperspirants, like from the things Carpe is doing in terms of working with actives, sorry, working with ingredients beyond the active ingredient, beyond the antiperspirant salt to make the antiperspirants more effective, uh, but also perhaps innovation in the actual antiperspirant salt. That'd be awesome. I know a lot of our listeners would love that too. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so it's it's an exciting, I mean, I think the big takeaway is this is way younger of a field than I think a lot of us assume in terms of we think it's kind of what's out there, it's stuck, it's static, that's antiperspirants, that's deodorants, they're not changing. It's pretty young and it's still changing and it's still growing and I think there's a lot of hope for things getting even better in the future. So my last big question that I wanna leave off on is how antiperspirant started as a solution for sweaty hands for a surgeon and became a underarm dominated market uh, over the following you know decades why did the the hand antiperspirant not catch on if that's the original need it was solving i think for the same reason that the innovation sort of stopped in the 70s and that's because you know the world we used to live in in terms of companies making products and getting them to consumers, it used to be much harder to do that. So with supply chains, with, you know, you needed to actually get your product into a store, e-commerce didn't exist. Uh, the, the companies that succeeded were the biggest ones and the companies that succeeded went after the biggest markets and that resulted in neglecting a lot of smaller needs. So, I mean, realistically for the vast majority of people, underarm antiperspirants is what they were interested in. And I think the big companies went after that and they just doubled down on that and they kind of ignored everything else. Um, and you know, for people like us, for a lot of people with hyperhidrosis, sweaty hands are a bigger problem. Sweaty feet are a bigger problem. And I honestly think it's thanks to e-commerce, thanks to the internet, thanks to smaller companies like Carpe being able to actually get out there and get solutions, antiperspirant solutions to people who need them. Um, now we're starting to see better treatments slowly emerging for people with excessive sweating beyond just the armpits. Awesome. Cool. Uh, well, that has been an abbreviated history of antiperspirants. Uh, if this is something that y'all found interesting, definitely reach out. Uh, you can just contact us at mystory at mycarpe.com. I know that's the email for the embarrassing sweat stories, but you can reach out to the podcast via that email about anything. Um, and if this is something you want to hear more about, we can definitely find some historians to interview, find some, you know, some people who are maybe doing some of this research in the 70s. I'm sure those folks are still around. And would love to hear uh, what it was like back then. So reach out if you're interested about hearing more. But next week, we will be back with something else. And um, we will talk about sweat. Is that how we want to end it? <laughs> I don't know. How do you want to end it? See you guys next week. <laughs> Have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>